Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so this is um, a really challenging uh, passage today. I think uh, all of us will find this uh, challenging in one way or another. So in, uh, in recent weeks, we've heard how Paul called upon the Colossians to keep making the main thing the main thing. Jesus is everything. He's been saying, don't, don't be distracted or persuaded by those who say you need Jesus plus something else. Remain in Christ. Grow in Christ and b- become the people uh, that God has created you to be. Well, from this point on in the letter, Paul begins to paint a very vivid picture of the Christian life, what it looks like to be made alive in Christ. He begins by saying, since you have been raised with Christ. Remembering, of course, that we are in Christ. The New Testament uses that term a lot. We are in Christ. That means what happened to Jesus happened to us. So if this Bible is Jesus, and this is us, and we are in Christ, well, whatever happens now to the Bible will happen to that piece of paper. And it's the same for us as Christians. Whatever happens to Jesus will happen to us because we are in Christ. When Jesus died, our old sinful nature died. When Jesus rose from the dead, We rose with him, not the same, but a new creation. We've been reborn, hence uh, the expression born-again Christians. We've been reborn to live a new life with Jesus, a life that begins now and stretches into eternity. Uh, This means that our identity, our relationship with God, and our eternal future have completely changed. We are sons and daughters of the living God, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, 
destined to live forever in a world where heaven and earth have been brought together. That is the reality for every genuine follower of Jesus right now. But we are not yet perfect. And so the extent to which we reflect this reality will vary. We have a choice. And every day we're presented with this choice. Do we live as if this world and this life of maybe 80, 90 or 100 years is all there is? Or do we live as if we have an eternal home in heaven and a God-given purpose for this life? Uh, Paul exhorts the Colossians and us to set our hearts and minds not on earthy things, but on things above. We might ask ourselves the following questions. What do I long for? What do I think about the most? What do I prioritize? Am I focused on things above? And you might say, well, what does it even mean to be focused on things above? Well, it doesn't mean that we're forever daydreaming about heaven, whatever our notion of heaven is, or that we're uh, detached from reality with our head in the clouds, just constantly thinking about praising God in the heavenly realms. It's a good thing to think about, but you know, it's not like we forget everything that's going on in our lives, and that's that that that's what we're thinking about all the time. Uh, that's not what it means to uh, to 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 think about things above, or to set our minds on things above. It's actually to be acutely aware of our eternal destiny, to understand what really matters, and to be mindful of the purposes of God. What is God doing in the world, and how might I join in with it? How can I be more like Jesus? What is God calling me to? What has eternal significance? And often when we're focused on things above, it will be very practical things that we're thinking about and engaging with and longing for. Uh, For example, I'm a husband and a father, and so my first God-given calling in life is to my family. Uh, And yes, my family's uh, spiritual health is my number one priority, and that more obviously falls into uh, the, the, the category of things above, uh, but I also think about work, finance, schooling, family days out, holidays, dentists, housework, homework, gardening, uh, a myriad of other uh, practical things. That doesn't mean that I'm thinking about earthly things. It simply means that I have a life here on earth, and with that life comes uh, certain responsibilities, practical stuff. That is, in, that is, in fact, uh, God-given. And, of course, uh, we can invite God into every area and aspect of our lives, and we should do. My work life, for example, now is not the best example because I lead a church, but let's say uh, I worked on a building site. Well, I can serve and glorify God in that environment. If I do my job well and I work hard for the team and I'm selfless in my approach, and I take a genuine interest in other people, then maybe people will listen to me when I've got something to say about my faith. You see, setting our hearts and minds on things above is an approach to life. It's an approach that recognizes that every area of our lives is an opportunity 
to honor and glorify God. And so hopefully over time, uh, our lives will become this uh, perpetual act of worship. Paul says, uh, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We will appear in glory. But right now, there's plenty of, of aspects to our life that aren't really that glorious. Uh, when Jesus returns, every aspect of our life and, uh, and our character that is ungodly will fall away and count for nothing. But everything about our lives uh, that is godly will remain forever. So let us focus in this life on that which will remain forever, on that which is of eternal significance. As we read on, we see uh, that when Paul talks about earthly things, he doesn't mean practical things. We all have to think about practical things. Actually, what he means is unwholesome things. He's saying, let us not drop our eyes from heaven to the gutter. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Paul wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago. Isn't that amazing how it still resonates today? Human nature doesn't change. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed are all central pillars of the pornography industry. Pornography twists, distorts, and corrupts God's good gift of sex. It is exploitative, abusive, and highly addictive. And since the invention of the internet, its consumption has gone through the roof. This is a big problem in our society. It's a big problem in our world. Up to 25% of all internet searches are for this kind of material, 25%. That means that a huge number of people have been enslaved by this, and it's a very difficult thing to break free from. But Paul tells us to put this stuff to death, the sexual immorality, impurity, the lust, the all-important question is how? How does one put this to death? Well, this is something that has come up quite a lot in my pastoral ministry over the years. Uh, I became a Christian at the age of 28, uh, almost 20 years ago, and uh, this is something I struggled with uh, myself. And I can tell you that in most cases, it doesn't disappear overnight. Uh, but there are a number of things that we can do to put this aspect of our earthly nature to death. Now, this you know, won't apply to, to, to everyone, I'm sure, but it, it's a difficult thing to talk about, but it's an important thing to talk about because you know, in uh, any group of people anywhere in society this, this size, there'll be people that struggle with this. That's uh, irrefutable, I think. Uh, the first thing to recognize is that every Christian is a new creation. We are no longer enslaved to sin. When we sin, when we give way to temptation, it is a conscious choice. We do have control over it, no matter how hard it might seem. And we have to understand that. Otherwise, you know, we throw up our hands, you know, about any sin in our life and say, well, I just can't do anything about it. 
But that's not true. We can. It is a choice. The second thing to recognize, and I've heard this from numerous people, is that it is very often a progression. It, you know, it could be that uh, someone is out and about and their imagination is a bit over, uh, overactive in a not-so-wholesome way. Or it could be that um, you know, someone goes online and sees a, a fairly innocuous image, let's say an attractive person with all their clothes on, and then they start clicking on images like that. And it's like you get reeled in, and the images that are being clicked on become progressively more explicit. Well, the time to fight that temptation is all the way back here at square one, not when you're on the verge of clicking on that explicit image. Uh, if it's a progression, it's something that needs to be knit in the bud. As soon as you recognize that's the direction you're headed, that's the point that you deal with the temptation, not when you're further down the line. The third thing is to recognize the triggers. If you're more vulnerable when you're online at night and everyone's gone to bed, don't go online at that time. If it's a kind of way of dealing with stress, then you need an alternative. You need another way, a more wholesome way of dealing with stress. Look at when and why it's happening and make positive changes to the variables in the equation. The fourth thing is to persevere. It's a long-term commitment. Uh, they've done quite extensive studies on pornography and its effect on the brain, and they found that strong neuropathways are quickly formed. Uh, so let's say the brain receives a certain stimulus and the response to that is to look at uh, pornography, well, this creates a strong link between the stimulus and the response. It's like uh, digging a trench or a channel. So the next time the brain receives that stimulus, it becomes much easier just to go down that same channel. It's already there, and it's kind of like you just keep going down this, this same route. That's a, it's like the brain directs you that way because the channel already exists. Um, very quickly, this channel becomes deeper and wider, and so it almost becomes like a, a default response. The good news is, every time your brain receives that stimulus and responds in a different way, a, say a more wholesome way, then that channel starts to get filled in. Uh, this means that whenever we resist temptation, any temptation that act of resisting the temptation actually makes it slightly easier to resist it next time, not just from a psychological point of view, but in terms of what is actually happening uh, within the brain as well. Studies show that it takes two to three months to break a habit. So in theory, if you can resist a particular temptation for two to three months, you can break free of it altogether. Um, you might not break free of the temptation, but you can break free of the response to it. Jesus came that we might have fullness of life, life in all its fullness. So if there are any habits in our lives that we need to break, the way to think of it isn't really, I need to break this habit or I need to break this addiction to pornography or to gambling or to anger or to whatever it is, much better to think, I need to make my life better. 
I need to remove this thing that is preventing me from experiencing fullness of life. I need to deal with this thing that is damaging my relationship with God and with others. Because at the end of the day, everything that God's word warns us against will massively reduce the quality of our lives. Be very damaging. God is not a spoil sport. He loves us. He wants the best for us. Uh, he wants to protect us from things in life that can damage us and harm us. Finally, if you're struggling with this stuff, don't keep it to yourself. Find someone you can trust uh, who uh, won't judge you, uh, someone that you can talk with, someone that will pray with you, someone that will hold you accountable. Because when this stuff is brought out into the open, brought out to the light, it becomes easier to deal with. And that is why I'm specifically uh, talking about it today. Paul tells us to put our sinful, earthly nature to death. Now, I've focused on pornography there because uh, this is, I think, a particularly prevalent problem in the 21st century. But the same, of course, applies to all sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. None of us are unaffected by those things. And Paul continues, because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Now, we don't really like to talk about the wrath of God. It doesn't sound very nice, does it? Um, we kind of rather skip over those bits. But actually, it's really important to understand uh, what's meant by this. So what does the Bible mean when it talks about God's wrath? Well, it doesn't mean God losing his temper. Rather, it is God's righteous and just response to sin and rebellion against him. And I, I, we're not just talking about pornography now. We're talking about all sin and rebellion against God. Wrath is an emotional response to evil. And we can understand this, can't we? You know, if, uh, if you hear about human trafficking or child abuse, it evokes an emotional response, doesn't it? And that's okay, and that's actually a good thing. I mean, what's the alternative? Indifference? Well, for God, all sin, all evil provokes an emotional response, and the Bible describes that response as wrath. But let's be clear, wrath is a response and not a characteristic. The Bible tells us that God is love. We can't say that God is wrath. God responds to me in wrath because of my sin. But God responds to me in love because of who he is. God is love. And God's love and wrath meet on the cross. Jesus, who was and is God, took the wrath of God upon himself because of his great love for you and for me. That means all our sin, all the mess and the muck and the, the stuff in our lives, Jesus took that upon himself so that we might be free to have a right relationship with God. Paul continues, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. So Paul's saying, okay, sexual immorality, lust, greed, they were part of your old way of life. That's not you anymore. You've been reborn. You're a new person. And you need to persevere in putting that earthly nature to death. But he then adds another list of things that we need to get rid of. Rage, 
anger, malice, slander, and filthy language. These are all things that have a devastating impact on our relationship with others and on the reputation of the church. We might think, well, I don't really struggle with anger, and certainly not rage, but getting angry doesn't necessarily mean going red in the face, shouting and throwing things. One of the ways that anger most commonly manifests itself, particularly in our culture, is through passive-aggressive behaviors. Not doing something that we've been asked to do, or responding with sarcasm. Yes, I'd love to unpack the dishwasher. Deliberately not answering someone's text or email. Avoiding them, almost as a way of trying to punish them. Returning a person's friendly attitude with a kind of curt, business-like demeanor. There are so many subtle ways and not so subtle ways that we can express the angry feelings that we're having. Paul says, get rid of all that. That belongs to your old life, not your new one. Then there's slander. Slander isn't necessarily speaking out against someone publicly in a malicious way. It can be gossiping with a friend over a cup of coffee. Uh, Sometimes I think we, we, we almost feel that our home or the family is a safe or acceptable place to slander someone. It's not. If I feel the need to slander someone, to speak badly about them, the chances are the problem is just as much with me as it is with them. could even be that the problem is entirely with me. Any slanderous conversation that occurs within the church, even between friends or between Uh, spouses or between parents and children, those conversations will have a negative impact on the church at some level. Paul says, get rid of slander. That belongs to your old way of life, not your new. Next one is filthy language. And someone might say, well, I work on a building site. Everyone swears. No one bats an eyelid. So what does it matter? It matters because we're called to be different And actually, people will expect us to be different. Have you ever had the experience when uh, someone swears in front of you and then they remember that you're a Christian and they say, oops, sorry. Of course, we're not offended. But the point is, they're holding us to a higher standard because they know that we're Christian. Now, we can't always live up to the high expectations of other people. We're not perfect. But I think we can probably avoid using filthy language. A friend of mine did work on a building site, and he, when he gave his life to Jesus, he stopped swearing literally overnight. And that alone was enough for his friends and his colleagues to, to realize that something really important had happened in his life. And over a period of time, he was able to uh, share the gospel with, with them. He's ordained now. He's uh, a minister. Finally, Paul tells us not to lie to each other. Within the church of all places, it's imperative that we create an environment and an atmosphere of trust. There's no point in us pretending to be something we're not. There's no point pretending to feel a certain way when we don't. All of us should have someone within the church with whom we can be open and honest about what's really going on in our lives. And I don't mean someone with whom we can uh, gossip and, and be slanderous, We're not getting together with people so we can point out other people's problems. We get together within the church so we can deal with our own stuff. 
you know, Jesus said, didn't he, you, you know, take the plank out of your own eye before you try and take the speck out of someone else's eye. So the, the idea of these close relationships, the friends that we can really confide in, is not so we can sort of address everyone else's problems, it's to address the stuff that we need to deal with. And when we have these kind of relationships within the church, these friendships where we can be open and honest, it, it does enable us to rid ourselves of anger, rage, malice, slander, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, and all the rest of it. We're not islands. We need to work on these things together, actually. Paul tells us uh, to rid ourselves of those things. And then he says, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. In other words, we are being renewed so that over time we will reflect God's image more fully. In other words, we will become more like Jesus. The truth is, as Christians, we have been renewed. We are being renewed. And one day, we will finally be made new. That is to say, we will be made perfect when Jesus returns at the end of time. We're not there yet. And Paul says here uh, about the old self with his practices and the new self. The old practices do not belong with the new self. Not only are they out of place, but they will spoil us and they will prevent us from living the fullness of life. That Jesus offers. I mean, if you've got some old milk that is sour and curdled and lumpy, you don't mix it in with the fresh new milk, do you? Because if you do, uh, you won't be able to tell that it's fresh new milk. It will look and smell and taste like the old milk. And if we try to mix our old way of life with our new way of life, we will spoil the process of renewal that God is so wanting to do in our lives. Of course, none of us are perfect, and we will all have times when the old self makes an appearance. Don't be discouraged. Just recognize that that person is dead. You have been made alive in Christ. And if you stick with Jesus and you pursue Jesus, pursue that close relationship with Christ, you will see less and less of the old self and more and more of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, your word deals with such uh, practical, down-to-earth, uh, gritty issues uh, that have been relevant to human beings at all times and in all places. And we pray, Father, that you will... Help us to be encouraged that we are new creations in Christ. We recognize that every single one of us in this room is struggling with sin in one way or another. And we pray that you help us to keep fighting that fight. That we might see less of the old self, the self that is dead, and see more of the new self, the person that's been made alive in Christ. And we pray that this will be the aim and the purpose of our lives, to be changed and transformed so that we might go on to be a changing and transforming influence in our families and our workplaces 
and our spheres of influence and within our culture. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.